you have your Bibles, please open to the Gospel of Luke. We will be spending the bulk of our time in chapter 1 and some time in chapter 2. Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. In just a moment, we're going to read verses 26 through 56. Um, But by way of introduction, I mean, this is the Christmas season, and I love the the songs that we sing, the, the emphasis that we try to have here on what is most important at Christmas time, um, because there's so much in our culture and the surrounding world at Christmas time that really doesn't have anything to do with Christmas um, in the truest biblical sense. Um, a lot of traditions sprung up which aren't aren't bad, and so please don't hear me saying that like Christmas trees and decorating with lights and you know family time and presents and lots of good food um, and all that like it's it's a special time Um, but the concern is is that that we get distracted from the heart of Christmas by all the stuff that comes with Christmas Um, and again all those other things like they have their place they're good they're enjoyable um, and we should look forward to presents and food and family and you know a little extra vacation time Um, Those are gifts that God gives us in His common grace. Um, I mean, it's still an amazing thing. Our society's not where it used to be on these things, but it's still okay to celebrate the birth of our Savior to some extent, to have time off. Like, it's still an amazing thing that that we have space to to draw this much attention to the birth of Jesus. I mean, that's still an amazing gift of God's grace. It hasn't been taken away yet yet. But we always need to remember that there is something central about Christmas. Um, you know, you've probably heard other messages titled this, The Heart of Christmas, but I have nothing to add. I don't have any originality in terms of a, a snazzy title uh, for this message other than The Heart of Christmas. And so as we go about the next several weeks, again, doing all these, these fun things, um, enjoying the atmosphere of you know Christmas songs and jingle bells and deck the halls and all of that. Let's remember what is most important. And I think if we keep the heart of Christmas at the center of Christmas, everything else can be enjoyed in its proper way. And so Luke chapter 1, um, and Luke chapter 2 that we're going to look at, I think shows us the heart of Christmas. We could also look at Matthew, uh, the first couple of chapters of Matthew as well. But we're going to start reading In uh, verse 26, we're going to read through verse 56, a little bit lengthier passage here, and we're going to, again, go to some in chapter 2 a little bit later. But let's just keep that kind of general theme in mind, the heart of Christmas. What, What is it that Christmas is really about this time of year that we culturally get to celebrate? What's ultimately at the root of it? I think we know the answer. I really think most of us in here know the answer to this. But it's such a familiar answer that we can kind of grow numb to it. At least I know I can. Um, and in growing numb to it, we, we tend to think, well, I know what it's really about. You know, Jesus is the reason for the season, this, that, and the other. Um, and we can fall into cliches. We can fall into just familiar habits in terms of what the Bible says, in terms of what we're supposed to sing in church. And so as we come to this, let's, let's try our best with God's help to look at it as if for the first time. 
and maybe rediscover a sense of the true wonder of what's going on. So Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came and said to her, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray again. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You that what we just read is what really happened over 2,000 years ago. God, we are reading history and we are reading Your truth. 
God, because this is Your Word and everything that You tell us in Your Word is true. And so when we read this story about the birth of our Lord Jesus and the promise of His birth to Mary, God, we know it really happened. It really happened. The eternal Son of God came into this world and took upon Himself human flesh according to Your promise that He might save us from our sins. And God, I pray that in these few moments that our hearts would be drawn again to You, that our eyes would be opened afresh to see the wonders that are in this passage, Your glory shining through it, and the glory of our Savior, the glory of Your promise. And Lord, may we be able to better walk in obedience to You because of what we see today. So Lord, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to Your truth and conform us to Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, uh, the title of this is The Heart of, of Christmas. And there's two main things I want to consider from this passage. There are a lot of things we could consider, a lot of things we could look at. Like we could literally start in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, go all the way through um, Luke chapter 2, verse 52, and we could spend hours and hours just walking through this text these two chapters, and just unpacking a, an immense wealth of spiritual riches uh, for us. So we don't have time for that. So I'm going to do my best to just focus on two main things connected in this passage uh, that I hope will be helpful uh, to all of us today. So two main truths, uh, two main ideas, if you will, uh, that we need to look at. Number one, and I'll, I'll restate these as we go. Number one is the fulfillment of God's promise. And number two is the faith response of God's servant. The fulfillment of God's promise and the faith response of God's servant. Okay, again, verses 26 through 37, we see the fulfillment of God's promise. We know this story again so well. The angel comes um, and he brings a message from God. And so let's think about this in terms of God fulfilling something that he had promised long ago and now the fulfillment of that promise is here. We see this fulfillment displayed in three ways. First, we see it displayed in the giving of surprising grace. We see it displayed in the giving of surprising grace. Look again at verse um, 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And let's stop right there. Okay, we see this giving of surprising grace. And we say surprising because this angelic greeting was completely unexpected. It was completely unexpected. Mary... Um, is just going about her life. She's betrothed to, to Joseph, her, <coughs> her husband, and future, you know, they'll eventually consummate the marriage at the right time, um, but they haven't come together yet in that way. But she's living her life as many Jewish, young Jewish women would do at the time, anticipating marriage, anticipating a life with her husband and the family together. And this angel interrupts. This angel comes to her, interrupting all of her plans with a message directly from God. And again, 
we need to appreciate the surprise that this would be. I mean, Mary, I think, based on what we see of her, like she, you know, she was a godly young lady. She probably knew the word well. She was trying to be faithful to God in her life. But God shows up. He sends an angel and it interrupts everything. And we need to feel the surprise, the, the kind of the shock, if you will, of what something like this would be, what it would cause in you. I mean, just imagine... If you get a knock on your door and a secret service agent is there, what's your first response going to be? You're going to start freaking out. You're going to be a little terrified, wondering, am I about to be dragged off somewhere and never be heard or seen from again? Why are they here? And now imagine even more that that secret service agent says to you, hey, greetings, O favored one. The President of the United States favors you. And you're about to play a massive part in the future success and health of our nation. I don't know what I would do with that. I'd be like, I don't think you got the right address. Do you, I mean, I'm just a little measly Bible teacher, you know, in Athens, Georgia. I'm elder at a, you know, we're not a super large, like, why, why are you taking interest in me? Like, it would mess with me, and I would constantly be wondering, why are you doing this? And just picture yourself in that role. Like, it would be strange. It would be really strange. And so let's not minimize the real humanity of Mary. Um, I mean, literally, look at, at verse 29. It says she's greatly troubled at the same. Like, all right, there's an angel. Not everybody gets to see angels. It's a pretty rare occurrence. And he's talking to me and he's saying, I'm favored. The Lord is with me. She's trying to figure out what's going on here. Um, and, you know, she needs help at this point. And so the angel reassures her, don't be afraid. I mean, that's what angels always say pretty much early on whenever they appear. Don't be afraid. Why? Because you see an angel, you're going to be afraid. It's just how it works, okay? They're glorious beings and, you know, that, that we don't really encounter unless God gives them permission and they interrupt our lives. If we were to see them like Mary, we would be afraid just like she was. And so he says, don't be afraid for you have found favor with God. And so we see first then that the greeting was unexpected. And in light of what the angel says here in verse 30, that you found favor with God, we see that God's favor was unearned. Because that's what the word is related to is the word grace. And we know the word grace literally means in the Bible, unearned, undeserved favor from God. So if God shows you favor, it's not because you earned it or you deserved it or God, you know, evaluated your character and said, okay, because you did more of this and less of that, I'm going to show you favor. God shows us favor completely contrary to what we deserve. Mary understood that. This phrase, found favor with God, was what's called asemitism. It was a Semitism. It was a phrase that a Jewish person would be familiar with and probably the most familiar place that they would have in their mind is Genesis chapter 6 verse 8 when it says Noah found favor with God. It doesn't mean Noah earned God's favor. It doesn't mean that Noah, you know, yes, Noah was righteous in his generation, but why was he righteous? It's because God showed him favor. It wasn't the other way around. We have to make sure we get that right. This was a phrase Mary would have known. And so for God to use that phrase for her is utterly earth-shattering and revolutionary. And we have to remember, favor like this is nothing that we earn. 
So we see then the fulfillment of God's promise first displayed in the giving of surprising grace. Secondly, we see it in the arrival of a long-expected king. We see it in the arrival of a long-expected king. Look again at verse 31. So after reassuring Mary, hey, God has shown you favor. He is showing you grace. What does He say? Behold, pay attention. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This king has been a long-expected king. Like from the earliest pages of the Bible, the world has been anticipating this king. He is the one that Adam and Eve heard about when God pronounced judgment on the serpent that the seed or the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. This is Him. That promise made way back that somebody's going to come and fix everything that's been messed up, restore people to God, fix what's broken and make everything right. The world has been waiting and waiting and waiting and now He is here. And we're going to appreciate who he is even more in light of what Mary or what the angel says to Mary about him. So first, just consider his name. His name is Jesus. I mean, we we know the name of Jesus. It's one of the most well-known names in our culture, in the world. It was a common name at the time. It literally, it's it's the, the, the Greek for the Hebrew Joshua. So, you know, we know Joshua's. We've got Josh's in this church. It's still a common name today. But what does the name actually mean? It means Yahweh saves. God saves. That's what the name means. Okay, it's it's a huge name. Like their their names meant something more, I think, to then than they do today. And so when they think this this son, this specially born son, he's going to be called Jesus, automatically we're going to go back in our minds if we're a Jewish person, we're going to think, okay, who is the Joshua of the Old Testament? It's the one who succeeded Moses. What did he do? He led the people into the promised land. Okay, and his name meant Yahweh saves. But according to Matthew 121, we know it's not just that God saves, they add a wrinkle. God adds a new, a new layer to this that wasn't there before. It's not just God saves, it's God saves his people from their sins. Okay, so now it's not just that God's going to bring salvation, it's a very specific type of salvation, it's salvation from sin. And we have to understand, bound up in this name Jesus, it means there is no other Savior. He is the only way we can be saved from our sins. There is no other Savior. There's no other forgiveness. There's no other way back to God but this Jesus. Acts 4.12, the apostles giving testimony to the Jewish leaders said, and there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That means if you want true salvation, salvation from sins, reconciliation with God, the only name in which you can find that is the name Jesus. No other name can give salvation. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. What does Paul say there? He says, there's one God, 
And there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. So, obviously affirming there's only one God, and there's only one go-between for us and God, and that's Jesus. And the only way we can come to God through Jesus is because He what? Gave Himself as a ransom for our sins. He died on the cross paying the penalty we deserve to bear so that when we trust in Him, what happens? We see our sins being punished on Him. And not only that, He rises from the dead. So when we trust Him, we're raised with Him to new life. He is the only Savior. Salvation can be found nowhere else. So this long-expected King, His name is Jesus His title, according to Luke 1, is the Son of the Most High. And we're going to see this in light of the next section, also His kingdom. The two are very much related. But the Most High here, it's a reference, I think, first and foremost back to Daniel chapter 7. We're not going to turn there right now, but that phrase Most High occurs, if I I remember right, 45 times in the Old Testament. 13 of them are in the book of Daniel. The only other one where it appears more is in the book of Psalms. Obviously, Psalms is a lot bigger than Daniel. So in little old prophet Daniel, the word, the title, Most High, occurs 13 times. And in that, the Most High is obviously a reference to God, but I think the argument can also be made that it's a reference to the Son of Man. There's a whole argument I could go into on that, but I'm not going to bore you with the details of that at the moment. But most high occurs 13 times in Daniel, many times in Daniel chapter 7. It is a reference to what? Son of the Most High, a reference to the long-awaited, the long-expected Messiah, the one God had promised. He is the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7 who will be given all the kingdoms of the earth. Um, His kingdom, it says, actually we do want to turn there. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. I want you to see this. Daniel chapter 7. Because we think about this Son of Man figure that we see in Daniel 7. We think about the fact that Jesus' favorite self-designation was the Son of Man. And we know from many places in the Bible that God's kingdom is a kingdom that will never end. His dominion will never pass away. And so on and so forth. Let's look in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And then verse 27. There's a lot we could say about this, but for time's sake. Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to this son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And then look at verse 27. It says, The kingdom and the dominion of the, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the saints of the people of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. So keep that kingdom language, dominion language in mind and look back at Luke chapter 1. What does the angel say? Look at this. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You hear that? Most High, Son of the Most High, reigning over the house of Jacob. His kingdom, there will be no end. One other place, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but we know this text as well. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. It says to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we see His title, we see His kingdom. He is the long-awaited King, the long-expected King that God has promised. God promised David that one of His sons would sit on His throne. And in that promise, David realized that God was promising more than just Israel, but the whole world. David says in his prayer of response, this is instruction for all of mankind. And so this coming one that God promised in Genesis whom God has revealed since is going to be a son of David, who's going to be a king over the whole world, it is this Jesus who is going to be born to Mary and to Joseph. He is the long-expected king. And so we see here several things, as we've already said. First, the giving of a surprising grace, the arrival of a long-expected king. Thirdly, the miracle of a virgin birth. The miracle of of a virgin birth. Look again at verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And we're going to stop right there. So let's just think about this as well. Again, the virgin birth is one of those doctrines as that we as Christians hold dear and for good reason. It is a special work of God's Spirit that a, a virgin would be able to conceive a child in her womb without the presence of a human father. It is a miracle. It is an absolute miracle that the eternal Son of God became man, took on human flesh, and was conceived in the womb of Mary, was born and was fully human for us. It is one of the greatest miracles in the Bible. I think it was J.I. Packer who said that if you can accept that, that God became man, if you can accept that truth, you can accept anything else the Bible teaches. And I think there's truth in that. It's hard for us to fully understand the mechanics of it. I'm not even going to attempt to go into. But it was a special work of God's Spirit. And we have to ask the question then, why a virgin? Why a virgin? Why not just any woman in Israel? Why did Jesus' conception and birth have to be from a virgin? Several thoughts here. You know these, but they're good to hear. First, because of sin. Because of sin in the world, guess what? Sin is inherited from the Father. Both men and women are guilty before God. Adam and Eve both sinned. But sin is transmitted from the Father to the children. So if Jesus had a literal earthly physical father, then he would have inherited a sinful nature. 
And if Jesus had a sinful nature, guess what that means? He would need a Savior just like you and I do. So he has to be free of sin. He has to come into this world without sin. And the only way he can do that is to have no earthly father, but a special work of the Spirit of God to form him in Mary's womb. He had to be sinless to die for us. Again, we know this, but think back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. They had to offer animals that were unblemished. You couldn't offer and sacrifice an animal that had an injury, a disease, or some malady or malformation in their body. You couldn't offer it. And for Jesus to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, He has to be without blemish, not just physically, but morally. He can't have anything in Him that is opposed to God, contrary to God, rejecting God, doubting God. He can't have any of that. He can't have any sin whatsoever, not even one. And so He had to be born of a virgin so that He could come into this world without sin. And this virgin conception and birth is a non-negotiable doctrine. It's not one that you can agree to disagree on. It's not one we can discard and treat, oh, well, you know, there's other things more important. If we lose that, if we deny that, then we lose the gospel. We lose Christianity if we do away with this. Two major ways, I think. One, we actually are denying the Bible if we deny the virgin birth. Why? Because the Bible promised a virgin birth in Isaiah 7. Matthew talks about that a little more. So if we deny the virgin birth, we're actually denying Scripture, and therefore we're denying God, we're rejecting God and saying He didn't tell the truth. And to say that God didn't tell the truth is to accuse God of lying, and if God is a liar, then He can't be trusted, and a whole host of other things go bad. So to deny it is to deny the Bible. To deny it is also to deny Jesus. It's fundamental to who He is. That He was born of a virgin. He came into this world without sin and that He lived sinless in this world. So the first major point that we consider is the fulfillment of God's promise displayed in the giving of surprising grace, the arrival of a long-expected king, and in the miracle of a virgin birth. And so for our few remaining moments, I want to look at, secondly, the faith response of God's servant. The faith response of God's servant. And so let's look again, beginning in verse 34. We're going to read through verse 38. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And here's where I want us to look to focus on for just a moment. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So when we think about this response, I said faith response, it flowed better with the outline, but this response of faith that Mary shows, we see first that she's trusting in God's word. She is trusting in God's word. Look again. She says, let it be to me according to your word. Now, if we had had the time, we could have gone back and looked at Luke 1, 5 through 24, which is when the angel goes to Zechariah and Elizabeth and talks about the birth of John the Baptist. 
And what we need to do, I think Luke did this intentionally, he, we need to compare the way John's father responded with the way Mary responds, okay? Because there's something vital for us in that comparison. You remember, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, they were advanced in years, they were beyond childbearing age, uh, but Zechariah was a priest and, and he, his time had come up and so he was there in Jerusalem and it, by lot he was in there burning incense in the temple and while he's burning incense, Gabriel appears, the angel appears and, and tells him, look, you know, God's favors on you and you're, you and Elizabeth are going to have a son. And he, he says a lot of things. And then look at verse 18. This is Zechariah's response. He says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. He's saying, how's this going to happen? Like we can't have kids. Like we're too old for it. And we need to understand that Zechariah, being a priest, should have known the Old Testament well. He should have known that he had good biblical reasons to trust what this angel was saying and not doubt. Because what happens? He doesn't believe. I don't see how this is going to happen. And so he struck mute until John is born because he didn't believe what the angel said. But he had good biblical reasons. I mean, if you were there, you didn't want to say, hey, Abraham and Sarah, come on, Zechariah, you remember them, right? They were a whole lot older than you were. And what did God do? God gave them a child. And so he had good biblical reasons to believe, and he didn't. And I think that's why God disciplined him for his unbelief in that moment. Now, here's the contrast. Think about this. Zechariah told him and Elizabeth, they're just, just too old to have kids, but they should have known God can, God can work in spite of that. You can still have kids even if you're too old in an earthly sense, Mary had good reasons to question how she would become pregnant because a virgin conception had not happened before. She had a good reason to say, um, how's this going to happen? You know, not married yet, Joseph and I. She had good reasons. She had good reasons. It hadn't happened, but... The angel answers, and then how does she respond? She doesn't respond with doubt. Look again at verse 38. This is so amazing to me. She says, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That does not mean she understood everything about what was going to happen to her. It doesn't mean that. But it does show us that she trusted God in spite of all the stuff, okay? Times marked by trusting God for things that are beyond our earthly comprehension. We can't explain it as fully as we would want to. We might not even understand it ourselves, but we still trust God because we know He's trustworthy. And so our response in difficult times, in difficult situations, when God's calling us to go through uh, go through a, a season of life that's hard or unexpected. And even if it's something we say down the road, maybe I want to do this, but I'm not ready for it now. But God's saying, no, you're going to do this now. What is our response to be? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. We need to have this kind of faith that Mary had that trusted God beyond what she could explain in earthly and so we see Mary clearly trusting in God's Word. Clearly trusting in God's Word. We also see her rejoicing in God's mercy. Let's look again at verse 46. 
in what is often called the Magnificat. It's her song of praise in relation to talking with Elizabeth and you know, Elizabeth saying, the baby in my womb leaped for joy when you got here. And she's you know, filled with the Holy Spirit and she's, she's saying things that she might not normally say, but she realizes that the, the baby growing in Mary's womb is none other than the Lord. It is the Savior. And this is Mary's response to that. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Let's just pause right there. I want to draw attention to something. Sinclair Ferguson said something about this that was very intriguing. You've heard Sinclair Ferguson. We've mentioned his sermons and his books. I highly recommend him. Um, But he said something on this that was very intriguing. And he said this. He said, verses 46 and 47 served as the foundation for the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Hmm. It may, maybe not the exact, maybe not only that verse, but definitely the idea contained in there. If any of y'all know about the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question is what? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that is exactly what Mary is saying in this verse. My soul magnifies, glorifies, draws great attention to, makes a big deal about the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. You wonder why you're here. Why do you exist? What's your purpose for being alive? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why you're here. That's why you have breath in your lungs. Um, It's to glorify Him. To make much of Him. And to rejoice in Him forever. But let's move on. She says this, verse 48, He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mercy is, I believe, the theme of Mary's song of praise. Mercy is absolutely essential to our understanding of the gospel, to our understanding of how God relates to us, Now, there's a lot of, I believe, misconceptions about what mercy is. But biblically speaking, when you look at the Word, it has to deal with pity and love and help to those who are helplessly miserable. You think of mercy ministries. What do mercy ministries do? They help people who are in a miserable circumstance to try to give aid, to try to give help, to try to bring up out of. And Mary is saying that God's mercy is for those who fear him. That means if you fear God, if you hold Him in awe, and that awe and reverence for God moves you to acknowledge Him as God above all, to treat Him reverently, to try to live for Him and not live contrary to Him, that's fearing God. It says His mercy is for you. If you still reject God, if you want nothing to do with God, then you can't experience this. You need a heart change. You need a heart change and only God can do that. But let's keep in mind, every single person everywhere is in need of mercy because of sin. No one is exempt from this need. Every single one of us is in a helplessly miserable condition because of sin. We are separated from God. We are under the wrath of God, awaiting the judgment of God to be cast forever into the lake of fire, into hell 
because that's what we justly deserve for our sins. We are all in that condition and God is ready to show mercy if we will fear Him. And when we fear God, that's acknowledging that He's great and we're not. That He's worthy and we're not. That's fearing Him. It's related to grace. It's not the exact same thing. But we all need God to show pity. We need God to show love. We need God to help us. And if we are to be saved, if we are to be right with God, then we've got to acknowledge that I am hopelessly and helplessly miserable and that only God can fix my plight. We see that God shows mercy to the humble and the lowly, often those of poor earthly estate. Look at verse 51. It says He's shown strength with His arm. And He's not saying there that God has a literal arm. God's invisible. He's a spirit. He doesn't have a physical body uh, in His essential nature. He took on a body in Jesus of Nazareth. It's a way, it's called an anthropomorphism. It's a way of speaking about God in a, in a, in a, with human-like characteristics so that we can understand Him better. Okay, That's what it means, that God has shown strength with His arm. And you think of showing strength with your arm, it's a way of showing your power, showing redemption. God, you know, with His mighty hand and outstretched arm, redeems His people. Um, it's a way of speaking of His power and His salvation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. Alistair Begg had a good caution on this. We are not to see in Mary's words any form of political revolution or liberation. That is not what uh, she is talking about. This is not a proof text um, to try to go overthrow the government and make everyone equal. That is not what it is saying. It is simply saying God often delights to accomplish His purposes through people the world would pay no attention to. I mean, we know this. Flip just a few pages over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And Paul reminds the Corinthians about the folly of worldly wisdom and worldly status and attainments in terms of our relationship with God. Verse 18, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And look at verse 26. Hear this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being, no flesh, might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The whole purpose of Mary in saying what she did is she's drawing attention to the fact that God delights to work through those the world ignores. Not always, but the vast majority of time, those whom God does mighty things through is not going to be those who were born in a king's palace, ate the king's food, had the highest education, and had all the status that someone in the world could want. God chose a lowly, humble virgin engaged to a carpenter. They had no ambition of ever having any wealth or status. They're from Nazareth, for crying out loud, which is a backwater, redneck, hick town. One of those places that, you know, I I come from one of those, okay? Some of you might as well. Um, it's, it's not a place that, that you're going to say, wow, a king's going to be raised there. You don't think that. But God delights to overthrow the wisdom and the expectations of the world. And we also see that this mercy is according to God's salvation plan for the world through Abraham and his offspring. God's consistent. Oh, He is so consistent. Look at verses 54 and 55. It says, He has helped his servant Israel, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Salvation was promised to Adam and Eve. But when God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, that coming salvation would only come through Abraham and his descendants and in no other way. So it is the family of Abraham that bring to us the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And we know that especially in the first century, this good news, this gospel went to the Jews first. And that's what Paul says, that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentiles. And a day is coming, I believe, when God will shed His mercy abroad on Jews again um, based on Romans chapter 11 and many, many will be saved. So God always keeps His promises. He always fulfills His plan. And when He said to Abraham And his children and their children, he made his promises that all the nations would be blessed through him. Guess what? That blessing is now here in Mary's son, Jesus. So we see that she was trusting in God's word. She was rejoicing in God's mercy. And lastly, we see her meditating on God's providence. So I just want to draw your attention to this real brief. Look at verse 19 of chapter 2. We know about the shepherds and the angels and we sang about it. We know that story. And so, you know, the shepherds had come. They're sharing what the angels had said. They're talking about it. And look at what it says Mary did. It says, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Later in chapter 2, verse 51, um, after Jesus was 12, he'd been in the temple asking the questions, amazing the teachers there. 
they, you know, he came back finally. It says he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And so I think what Mary's doing here um, is, again, this is a good example for us to imitate is as God is working and we, we have His Word and God is fulfilling this and we're studying it and we're understanding it, we need to treasure these things in our hearts. We need to treasure God's Word and God's works in our hearts and ponder them. Think deeply over them. Meditate on them. And again, meditation in the Bible is not emptying our minds as though you know, something's going to come and fill it. Sometimes we treat meditation like that and we treat prayer like that. I'm just going to sit here and be quiet. And, and God just, God, don't, that's not how it works in the Bible. Meditation in the Bible is filling our minds with the truth of God and the Word of God and, and thinking over it and going over it in our heads and processing it and pondering it and wrestling with it over and over and over again. Until we, we get every bit of life and truth and glory that we can out of it. And then we move on to the next verse. Mary is treasuring up all this stuff. And she keeps thinking about it. She keeps pondering it in her heart. And I think when we come to the Word and we think about all that God has done, we need to not just have, the, the, have it memorized. We need to treasure it. We need to see this as valuable. We treasure all kinds of things in our hearts. How many of you who love football could tell me every single stat of every single person on the University of Georgia? And, and not just that, we have fantasy football leagues where they know every, every single quarterback, all these big players, and they're doing all this, and they know more about football than football knows about itself. But I, I, I can't do that with the Word. We treasure what we value, and we need to beg God to make us value this book more than anything. Because if we treasure it, what's going to happen? We're going to spend more and more time in it and we're going to ponder it. We're going to meditate on it and we are going to love it and we are going to not be able to get away from it and it's going to fill us up. All right, I'll stay off that soapbox for now because um, I love Georgia football. Go dogs. Um, so we think two big things here. The fulfillment of God's promise and the faith response of God's servant. So again, in light of these things, this is the heart of Christmas. God made a promise of a Savior. He kept that promise. And we see in the mother of that Savior a good example of how we can respond to God. And so as we go um, to this Christmas season, and you know, again, you think of lots of presents, and I hope you get to enjoy presents. There are they're a gift of God's grace, common grace to us. I hope you get to enjoy some good food and good time with family and you make a lot of good memories. I um, hope you get to go see Christmas lights decorated on houses. Um, all these things are good gifts from God. We don't need to feel bad about them or somehow think we're unspiritual if we enjoy them. But more than anything, in the midst of all of that, we need to remember what's really most important during the Christmas season. It's Christ. Like that's why there's a Christmas season to begin with is because the people who came up with a Christmas season in our culture, they believed, or at least some of them did, that Jesus really is the Son of God and the Savior of the world and He's worth celebrating. He's worth celebrating. And so I'm grateful that we celebrate Him as a church and let's commit ourselves to keeping Him central and celebrating Him above all, especially over the next several weeks. Let's pray. Father,
Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who fulfills your promises. And I thank you, Lord, that you show us how we can respond. Lord, trusting in your word, um, meditating on your providence and all that you've done. Lord, you give us so much to think about. Help us to treasure Christ and your word more than we've ever done in the next few weeks. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.